Welcome to the Football by Football Podcast. And welcome back to the Football by Football Podcast. This is our show called In the Game. I'm Matt Chatham, joined by Brady Quinn. We'll have drop-ins here by Brady Papenga once again. Brady and I now have started doing this as a morning show, so I'm doing it with a cup of coffee instead of a beer these days and uh, trying to get used to having my morning vibe. It's, it's not in my normal world. How are you doing down there in Florida, Brady? I'm doing well. I'm actually used to this morning vibe. Oh, you're used to it. Well, we get up around 5, 5.30 with the baby now. That's so right. I, I'm always uh, kind of rocking and ready to go by, by 7.30, uh, if not 6.30 or earlier. Well, let's just dive into this football thing. we got so much to talk about this week, and much as we did a week ago, right off the top, we got to talk college football because that season's now over. Uh, you know, Obviously, it's it's considered an upset because Clemson beats Alabama, uh, although a year ago that you know Alabama won the national, ti- uh, national title in that same, same contest. Um, I, my personal reaction real quickly was that I know it's being called an upset, but after I saw what they did to Ohio State, I think I'd mentally prepared myself for anything could happen, even after Alabama went up early. Uh, any sort of lingering thoughts from you after this thing sort of fleshed out? Yeah. Look, if both Scarborough doesn't get hurt at the end of the third quarter, Alabama wins that game. That's the bottom line. If you look at the difference really between last year's game and this year's game, I mean, Derrick Henry plays throughout. He didn't get injured in that game. And Bo Scarborough right. was kind of on that pace almost as Derrick Henry was last year. So that's kind of the first point. Um, the stat that everyone throws out there that everyone thinks is pretty cool was the Nick Saban being 97-0 and with a double-digit lead going into the fourth quarter. And obviously that's when Bo Scarborough got hurt, and that's when Clemson had that 21-point fourth quarter, which just to remind folks, Alabama had only given up 32 points the entire season in the fourth quarter, and Clemson scored 21. So it's pretty remarkable. Uh, the other thing was Mike Williams and Deion Kane. We talked about that yeah. last week, really, when we were talk- previewed the game. You know, those guys uh, equated to 188 yards and one touchdown between the two of them. A lot of big plays, a lot of clutch catches down the stretch, and in particular in the fourth quarter for those two guys. So two guys who didn't have that impact in the game last year, Clemson lost by, I believe, five points in this year's game. They won by four. And I think if you're looking for a difference, that's one of the differences too. Those guys were not a part of last year's championship. And I just think at at the end of the day, the Clemson wide receiver group became a little bit overwhelming uh, once Clemson started to take over a little bit there in the fourth quarter. This is sort of more of a nuts and boltsy football kind of question, but I found myself, you know, wondering this as that thing went along. I mean, it was getting a little snarky on Twitter. I, I have that habit, but was thinking a little bit about, you know, the physical play, especially in the first half, uh, between the defensive backs and wide receivers, and how, you know, as, as much NFL as a, as like you consume and I consume, having to work in this industry, uh, I, I was sort of astounded by just how physical the play was, uh, and how, you know, obviously that would always be illegal contact in the NFL and it caused more play stoppages and that kind of thing. But one of the things that I found even more remarkable is as this thing went on is I just kept reflecting on why we did those rule changes in the NFL. Uh, competitive balance, I always thought, between the Colts and Patriots, but that's a side story. But beyond that, I think the, the underlying thing was they wanted to improve scoring or something, right? But, uh, you know, you're looking at a national championship game here. A year ago, 45-40 to 40 or whatever it was. This year, 35-31, somewhere in that range. And you're getting high-scoring games with a style that's more restrictive than what the NFL rule is. And, and as I looked at that, I'm like, good. You, you could touch 
touched on a lot last week, and it was one of my – this is really the second full Alabama game I sat down and watched all season, so full disclosure there. But I was very impressed. I read a lot of the scouting stuff on a lot of the dudes kind of leading into the game, just wanted to prep myself a little more for who I was looking at. Alabama's a damn, damn near Pro Bowl college <laughs> defense. Like, there's so many studs on that side of the ball. Yet, even with those more less restrictive rules uh, – they're giving up, you know, monstrous numbers. And like you said, 21 points in the fourth quarter and you know, over 30 points and all this stuff. How, how do you account for that kind of scoring with that kind of talent on the field to stop it and rules that don't get in the way? Well, look, the college NFL level is completely different. I mean, think about how many teams are in college football compared to the NFL. So I think when you, when right. you take all that talent, that talent pool, as they go to the NFL, I think one defense is actually have um, – I guess a little bit more of an advantage. Um, I think they become the the better athletes of the two. I think if you look at most teams in the NFL and you look at the athletes that, that they have on offense, the athletes that you know the opposition has on defense, there's probably better athletes on the defensive side of the ball. But that's that's just the bottom line. So I think the offense actually maybe needed, in my opinion, some of these rules in order to allow them to have more productivity, more points. And let's let's be honest too. It's, it's about fantasy. Fantasy has had a huge impact on the NFL and its popularity and kind of getting people to watch more games as opposed to just one game for the team they watch. Now they can watch all these games because, or at least follow them because their players are playing in those games. Uh, so that's part of it as well, in my opinion, because no one likes seeing those 6-6 six, six ties that go into overtime like we've, we've seen this season in the NFL. They want to see points. They want to see people excited about their player putting up yards, putting up points, whether it's a quarterback, running back, receiver, whatever. They don't want to see all this, uh, you know, all these defensive battles where all of a sudden people are relying on their defense and their fantasy team to actually win. So I, I think that's had a huge impact in my mind. But the other thing, when you talk about the style of football, Alabama was playing an NFL-style football. They only saw right, about 65, on, yes. 66 plays a game. Yep. And they had to face 98 with a kneel, too, which ended up making a 99. So, you know, to me... Even though there was a contrast in style of these two teams, you kind of saw that in the first half, the Clemson, Clemson still controlled the time of possession. They still ran more plays in the first half. They just hadn't been as productive with some of those plays. In the second half, you could see that Alabama defense was getting worn down. They basically played another half of football uh, as far as the, the plays right. they faced, the amount of time Clemson had the football, almost 10 more minutes. So I think that eventually wore them down. That was kind of another key in that game. Yeah, oddly enough, I mean, when I was researching this stuff last year, I wrote out a column on this a year ago, so I don't know if the numbers changed that much, but I was surprised. I mean, I assumed that, you know, when they made that illegal contact thing in the NFL that it would, you know, do what they wanted it to, jack things up, but it's been less than a point or right around a point. It's 0.9 or 1.03 or it was super low. It was like right around a point. So rule change, decade worth of time had elapsed, and it, the effect was minimal. So I guess my greater thought would be, you know, I don't know. I, I was watching it as I was as sort of that game was going on. And man, if you could play, and I know some people do this, but if you could do college football fantasy, you know, that, that even with their rules and the pretty much, you know, a collection of the 22 best athletes in the country, Clemson's pretty loaded. Ohio State themselves a week ago. It's a loaded place. Uh, you know, and now Alabama putting them out there too, and they're still able to ring up the scoreboard. But um, anyway, but either that's sort of a side topic. But I think that, uh, one of the things sort of I wanted to transition 
as we move out of there, just one quick note on this. Uh, I'll have to put my hand up in the air here. We're doing a show for you guys, and I'll have to admit that I did not see the end of the game. Uh, I was one of the you know old curmudgeons, I guess, sort of complaining about the length of the thing. I fell asleep during halftime, woke back up in the fourth quarter, uh, and then fell asleep again. I guess that makes me old and weird, but I ended up having to watch it back on DVR the next morning. But I, the, the major gripe here for me is because I'm a, uh, I'm a guy who did not have a horse in that race, right? I'm, you know, I live in New England. I'm from Iowa, so I could care less unless it's just sort of, you know, football uh, about watching Alabama and uh, and Clemson. So I, it was interesting to me to look back at the the TV ratings for the game and the the biggest markets that sustained a number throughout this four and a half hour game. Basically, it was presented as if it were a Super Bowl uh, with that super long halftime and all that kind of stuff and longer commercial breaks and all those things. That's that's where they get their money. I understand that, but the Big market hits were all southern cities, you know, the Greenville and Asheville and, you know, all throughout the south, 20 markets. But, you know, they miss in a lot of the bigger places. And I, I guess my my thought as I'm watching that is like to make college football more palatable for everyone the way the Super Bowl is palatable just because of the Super Bowl. Uh, you know, you can be in Milwaukee and screw it, the Jets and Niners are playing or whatever, and you're still going to watch the Super Bowl. But I feel like you lose some people in a college football game when it gets that long on a Monday night, even though it's a weeknight and ends up being that long of a game. So I just thought it was sort of like, you know what, I get what they're doing. College football wants to make it their Super Bowl. I actually think that's smart. But I wonder if it's ever able to migrate to a Saturday so that they can do it that way, you know, do like a 3.30 start and work all night kind of thing. Because... Man, Monday, where your key demos are just going to be southern cities uh, that you know that get that get the biggest numbers, the twenty five and thirty two percent per market kind of stuff, the big numbers. Uh, man, it's it's tough to sell on a Monday for four and a half hours with, with unaffected markets. But a, any thoughts there on? Well, maybe you think it's fine, or, or is there any other way to sort of, of change that to try to c- continue to bring more people into this big tent college football thing? That's definitely too long. I mean, you're right. There, there's a business side to all of this. The simplest rule change they can make to, you know, limit the amount of times actually played is, is adopt the first down rule that the NFL utilizes. Don't stop the clock to reset the change. Just let the let the game clock run. And, you know, it, it wouldn't change things uh, too much. I mean, your two-minute drives would actually, you know, have to be more efficient and all that. Maybe you wouldn't have yeah. as much production in the final minutes of halves or, or of a game. But it would it would help in that aspect because you're talking about um, the college football game, which is, is more offensive than defense as, as far as more of the production and, and the amount of points scored and all that. So yeah. that in itself, with the amount of big plays, the first downs that are got, you know, that are given throughout the course of a game, that would help cut down, I would think, the game by at least 10 minutes, 15 minutes, because you're constantly stopping plays. And the other issue with the national championship game was the review process. You know, they seem to be very, very conscious of what this game was, reviewing almost every single call that was somewhat, you know, controversial or that was close, even when it didn't seem like it needed to be and the officials did a really good job of getting it right, uh, right. they were very, very cautious about ensuring that they could review every possible chance they got. Um, so I don't know that they needed to go to that extent. I think they need to trust the officials who are down there on the field. They, they've been doing a good job. And, and their review process, in my mind, actually, has been pretty solid this entire year for the most part. So yeah, uh, those, those 
two things I think is part of the reason, too, why it got held up as long as it did. But as far as trying to make it more appealing to bigger markets, it's just tough because, you know, think about it. Unless Boston College uh, becomes really good in Boston, which even then, it'll never compete with the Patriots. Even if Syracuse, which is, isn't even in the New York, you know, uh, the, the downtown Manhattan area. You yeah, know, like six hours out in Western New York, right? <laughs> yeah, they, they, like they'll never have that appeal. Um, you, know, n- you know, Notre Dame gets a lot of attention be- because of, you know, drawing back to, you know, Catholicism and a lot of Catholics out there who root for Notre Dame. If you go back to the 2012 National Championship, Alabama-Notre Dame, that had one of the biggest ratings ever be- because of Notre Dame's national draw and their attention. So right. you kind of have to draw in a bigger market you know, quote-unquote, bigger market teams, per se, in college football, like your Notre Dames, like your Ohio State, which graduates fifteen to 20,000 students a year and has, you know, 50,000 to 60,000, or, or like your Texas, you know, right. which is another huge school and has a huge following and fan base. You know, those teams tend to rate higher and draw more, uh, even though there's college football fans there and people will watch. It's just not the same amount of attention. So that's the hard part is, you know, how do you draw in uh, some of those bigger market teams, they have to be able to make it to the national championship game. I mean, ESPN showed that the two cities that had the highest ratings this year where they got the majority of their ratings from, Columbus, Ohio, and Birmingham, Alabama. I mean, you, you, <laughs> just can't, you, go, yeah. you can't compete with those with, with the NFL markets. I mean, Dallas right. and New York and some of these other huge markets, you're, you're never going to win that battle. One of the things I always wonder is, you know, that it. you made the point about BC, and I think it's, it's obviously a valid point. It's just... Uh, I wonder how they then do get the eyeballs, uh, I think, based on format for basketball, right? So there's a, there's a similar disinterest, but I think when you start talking Final Fours and the tournament and all that, it's almost like the, the apparatus is more interesting than the teams themselves. And that's the gambling angle. I mean, I think that's the people doing brackets. Yeah. I think it's the – so it's all, I've always sort of thought that the basketball has been brilliant that way because you're less – you know, I will watch a friggin' Villanova Wake Forest game. You know, if it's in the Final Four, and I'm concerned about that bracket, you know, or that pick, or a Sweet Sixteen game, or whatever it is. So sometimes I think that that might be your answer. You know, it's format, and I'm not talking about diluting the whole thing into into you know 64 teams and all that. But I think maybe the eight might bring people in that way if you get a little more invested when it's just a two game thing. If for some reason you know you were an anti Big Ten guy, you could care less. You didn't watch that one and. You know, you might not have watched the other one because it was a Southern team and a Northwest team, and then all of a sudden you're out of interest. But uh, if for some reason you got drawn in some other way and eight's enough to where, you know, I could have filled out a bracket on that one and maybe got in a gambling pool or something, maybe maybe somehow, some way that gets a guy that lives in, you know, Wyoming or something to, to pay a little more attention. But obviously there's they're not looking for a big number in, in Laramie. So <laughs> we'll, we'll move here on to the NFL. So obviously this is divisional week, and I I, I – and I, I sort of, you know, sat and got an ulcer during the week. I'm, I'm being sarcastic, but I, I, I might have told a little fib last week because after, I think I got a little excited about the fact that we were getting playoff football, and I said this is one of my favorite weeks, and, you know, I don't think it was. And, and it, I should have known this. I know this in the past. Wildcard week is really fun to get excited for. I think the reality of wildcard week is always a little less after once it's gone through because the reality is there's the reason they're playing that week. These aren't necessarily your best teams. A few of them might be, but they all aren't. Uh, and, you know, I said it was my favorite week in at least 1A and 1B. The reality is 
I have a better recollection now of what I generally think each year, and it's really divisional weekend. So I apologize for that uh, that untruth on the air. Uh, I, I did enjoy last weekend quite a bit, but I, I think this is really your, your your preeminent week because you still get four games, four games, eight still teams that are awful good, and there's a reason they're here. So we're going to sort of dive into that portion, but first we should pause for one second because there has been quite a bit of off-field news this week. Uh Coaching changes going on. We can, you know, we we don't have to canvas all of them, but just one quick hit thought: Is there a particular move that's happened? You know, Vance Joseph to you know fill in a spot, or the fire, just elevating Marone, or any of these that hit you as, hey, that's the right one, or maybe that's not the right one, or a vacancy that's still out there. Some sort of going away coaching thought, Brady. I'll, I'll kind of touch on each one quickly. So with Doug Marone being hired, uh, I think you look at Jameis Winston. Marcus Mariota, what, what decisions the Tampa Bay Bucks and Tennessee Titans did respectively with elevating their offensive coordinators or, in my mind, keeping continuity within the offense yeah. for a quarterback, essentially, so they could continue, continue to grow. I think that's kind of what they had in mind because they knew by hiring Doug Marone, Nathaniel Hackett stays as the OC, yep. and they brought in Tom Coughlin because he probably wanted to be the head coach, but they said, ah, oh, we don't want you in that role or capacity, and he didn't have another opportunity to go somewhere else. So they're letting him come in there as the, the VP or whatever his title is going to be. He's essentially going to micromanage this thing, kind of be the head coach over Doug Marone. And Doug Marone's probably the only head coach that would allow him to do that because Doug Marone didn't have any other opportunities. So yep. that, that's how this all ended up working out. It was about continuity. It was about control, at least for Tom Coughlin. If you go to Sean McDermott getting the job up in Buffalo, one, very deserving of it. I think he's a good defensive mind. But this is a slap in the face to Rex Ryan. You're essentially bringing in a, a different another defensive, defensive guy. guy. Yeah, yeah. That, that, that you just you just had one there. Another and, Ir- another know, Irish guy. Quite frankly, they they fired Orion <laughs> and hired a McDermott. I mean, come on. <laughs> I, this one's just a little bit less boisterous. So okay. the interesting thing will be the Bills were better when they ran a free four three before Rex Ryan got there. Obviously, they'll get back to a four three because of McDermott. Uh, and now Anthony Lynn, who's interviewed for a bunch of jobs, who was the interim head coach for one game and was the hot candidate, he's kind of on the outside looking in. And you got to wonder if maybe he, after the interview process and all that went, and maybe some of the calls down the stretch, uh, you know, for him offensively. In particular, I look at the Week 16 matchup against the Miami Dolphins when they really had an opportunity to win that game when it went into overtime. But, you know, he calls a reverse to Reggie Bush and knocks them out, uh, of really being able to, to get a first down and then it knocks him even into a further field goal to end up being missed and the Dolphins go down and win the game. That to me was the difference in that game. So anyway, um, a big slap in the face to Rex Ryan at the end of that. And then finally, uh, Vance Joseph, you know, he's been a coordinator for one year. It wasn't a good year in Miami, but the guy has the recommendation from anyone he's ever been around and anyone he's ever worked with. It talks about how bright he is, the vision that he has. So we'll see. John Elway has not missed of yet. Well, I guess besides the fact that they didn't address the quarterback situation in my mind, or they, they didn't do enough to get anything out of it this offseason. I think that's what ultimately bit them in the butt this year was the fact that they thought they could rely on the defense, have another, bat, another year of bad or lackluster quarterback play and still get into the playoffs, possibly win a Super Bowl. That didn't happen. So right. now they find themselves with a young coach, Vance Joseph. Hopefully they'll get Mike McCoy to come back to be their OC. He's one of the best in the business. But as, as far as control, this is another control play. Elway will be able to control Vance Joseph, being that this guy has only been a coordinator one year 
in his career. And beyond that, he's always been a secondaries coach. Now, he's got a lot of familiarity in Colorado. He played, a, a Boulder, played up in Boulder, coached there in two separate stints. So he's known in that area. But outside of that, right. you know, and outside of your coaching circles, he's widely unknown. So we'll see how this one pans out. I would say uh, this is one of those trust moments, and it's something where I can absolutely understand a fan looking sideways at that and saying, the Vance Joseph one I'm talking about, and say, man, Miami's defense sucked this year. Why did that guy get a job? And I think probably the greater thing, the greater test put before a, a general manager or an executive vice president or anybody that's trying to sort of fill that fill that role is trying to figure out, it's not just picking the most successful coordinator. It's sort of trying to figure out the leadership skill thing, the management portion, you know, and you're really trusting other relationships and other people vouching for how they'd handle that role because it ain't just the best coordinator. If not, Wade Phillips would, you know, probably be the head coach of all the teams, you know, or whatever, whatever it may be. So I thought probably one of the smartest things they did in that situation, I'm not, you know, saying it was a right or wrong call with Vance Joseph. I don't know much about him, but uh, other than just the the really rough year that, that, that Miami's defense had, uh, all I would simply say is I thought it was smart. And I think at least as we're to air here now, at least I'd read uh, one of the Denver reporters reporting that they were trying to get Wade locked up. I think that would be the biggest part, you know, make, keeping the continuity there. So Wade Phillips is always a guy who just kind of does his thing. You know, it's like it's my defense, let me run my defense. You go run your offense and your team kind of thing. So if that's the case, I think they're good to go. Uh, but it, it is curious that way. And, you know, you, you put yourself out there when you go with the inexperienced guy. Uh, the other thought I had was sort of with the vacancies that are now now still out there. We're talking basically all California teams. You know, it's L.A. still L.A. still looking for a coach. San Fran's still looking for a coach. Uh, Bill Musgrave, not, not the head coach, but uh, they let go of their O.C. after uh, – you know, uh, out there in Oakland after, you know, Derek Carr gets hurt. Musgrave was, you know, talk of the town later in the year. All the offensive success those guys were having, Derek gets hurt and he's out of a job a few weeks. Yeah, you know, he didn't get fired. He just didn't get rehired, which was a little unusual. But interesting to see now Mike McCoy is interviewing in Denver as an OC and, and Musgrave's interviewing in Denver as an OC. And there's sort of this uh, incestual uh, AFC West stuff going on, and it's actually something we kind of see out here in the in the AFC East from time to time. So I thought that I found that kind of interesting. But let's uh, let's make our moves here back on the field. We need to do it uh, and get into this. Oh no, you know what? I, I interrupt myself here real quickly. We got to do this. So the Chargers are leaving. The Chargers are going from San Diego. At least word here today when we're when we're when we're taping this show. Dean Spanos is announcing to his staff that he's taking the team to LA. I'm a purist. Maybe that makes me sort of obnoxious to a lot of people that are more progressive about moving teams to the biggest money marketplace. But I was pissed. And maybe maybe it was a little sentimental, but you know, having spent that little bit of time with the Rams to start my career, just really having good vibes about the city of St. Louis and how great of a sports town it is with the Cardinals and the blues and, and all of that. And even the Rams when they were winning, winning their, their stuff. But, uh, I just was sick to my stomach when they lost their team, even though it was going back to the place that originally had them. I obviously understand that, but it's just a great sports town to not have it. And now San Diego, which I'm not saying it's a great sports town because obviously they've attendance has been waning. Part of that's because they've been being antagonized by their owner about getting a new stadium. And it was one of the older ones in, in football, but in that process of looking for a new deal, it looks like the fan base and the uncertainty of whether they were keeping their team was, had been a little bit alienated here over the last year or two. Uh, and deal fell through. Dean decided, Decides to leave, and uh, San Diego now gets uh, a Jets team. Basically, I, I, I say that 
sort of with my teeth gritting because I've been in that experience of being in a huge market like New York and sort of being the, the second sister, being the Jets, uh, when a town where, you know, you're one B and that sucks. Uh, I always, I just ever thought that the NFL would want to replicate that situation because at least in New York, it is a rabid football market and, and it can support two. I don't know if LA can do two teams, man. I, I don't know. I just, I, I'm not a buyer there, but, um, what's, what's sort of your thoughts of the, the chargers now becoming the Chets out there in LA? They, they can't support two bad teams. I'll tell you that much. And, <laughs> and that's, that's the issue True. here is right. Gotta be can good. either of these teams generate any sort of interest. Can they actually be good on the football field? Uh, cause it, the business decision side of, of all this is easy, right? L.A., bigger market. You figure, like, the ratings will be higher. There will be more events uh, throughout the course of the year, not just football. So that's where it makes sense, uh, you know, from an ownership standpoint, where you can see why Dean Spanos would want to move. Um, you know, because if you're looking at attendance, they're going to be playing at the StubHub Center, you know, down there in Carson, California, for at least the first, you know, couple seasons until they can share the stadium in 2009 once the Rams stadium is built. So that's a 30,000-seat stadium, and it's not guaranteed to sell that out. Maybe, maybe in the beginning, but you know, maybe, maybe not after they, they lose a number of games or out of the playoffs. So, you know, it, look, this is, this is, it's a business. Everyone realizes that. They don't really care about how the fans feel. I mean, that, that's the bottom line. The owners are in the business of making money, and being able to be in a bigger TV market helps on top of the fact that their franchise is going to be valued more because they're an L.A. team. That's just the bottom line. That's how real estate works, and, and that's, that's the overall impact of all this. I'd be curious, though, to see what happens with Philip Rivers. I know he's said before when this the discussion first started, I don't know if it was a year or two ago, that he really didn't intend to move with the team. And, and right. as far as his long-term, you know, future, you know, whether he's wanted to be with the team or not, he, he voiced his opinion. He didn't want to move to L.A. Maybe that had more to do with the fact that, you know, he wanted to be on the side of the fans. He wanted to continue to kind of have that fan favorite sure. uh, tag like he's always had in San Diego. But, um, you know, because there's more marketing opportunities too up in L.A. So you've got to think that on the bright side for him, that'll be there for him if he wants it. But, you know, I'll be curious to see, you know, some of his comments once they do move to L.A. and see how he feels about it. It's interesting, too, for me that, you know, people talk about Manning. You know, Manning just retired. Peyton Manning just retired. Uh, Tom Brady's getting up there, but, man, that dude looks like he could still play five years. But there is sort of that second wave, uh, and, and, and Drew Brees is closer to Tom's age as well, just a notch below. But it is – we are – there is that second wave of older, old-ish quarterbacks, and Eli Manning and Phillip Rivers are sort of in that – that realm, and you know, this this week the Giants and sort of their their takeaway postseason interviews or whatever as things were ending, the, the general manager alluded to the idea that hey, we do have to start looking for Eli Manning's replacement, not to replace him now, but to try to do the understudy thing. You know, maybe the the Aaron Rodgers kind of you know have him under as an understudy for a few years or a couple years or whatever it may be, but we at least need to start thinking about that. And that was one of the things that kind of popped in my head, aside from just sort of general rage for the people of San Diego. I mean, that's one of the best, the stadium aside, it's one of the best places in America to have a Super Bowl, and there will be no reason to ever have a Super Bowl in the city of San Diego again. I just think that's sick. I, I, the one thing I don't like about this, well, here, I'll get off on the, the finish the quarterback point, though, first. So I do wonder where this takes uh, Philip Rivers' career. You know, does being in this transitional, mucky, gross, 
you know, who the hell do you play for? Where do you play thing for a couple years, right at the end of your career? What kind of effect can that have? Because when you're an old dude, what's really driving Tom Brady now, what's really helping him is focus. And he's in the same place he's been for years. He's, he's dead set on his routine. His body is tuned in. There's no distractions. He's not traveling. He's just doing him. You know, Philip has, has been, you know, has a huge family, is, is just a giant big heart guy. He's got his, uh, you know, adopted uh, just a huge crew. He's got a, he's got a big family. He's his known family man who wanted to keep his roots where he was. I always wonder how this can affect performance or want to. You know, to, to you know, go make me play in friggin' Hollywood for, you know, two hours from home. And do I have to re- relocate? Maybe I don't want to. Maybe my roots are still back there and I'm away from family. I don't, he'll have to make a decision. But I always wonder how, you know, he, he's done it the right way throughout his career. And now he's kind of in this situation where, man, is he the kind of guy that in his late 30s wants to go spend a few years at another franchise? Maybe the Chargers would try to their best to stand in the way of that happening, but you know, it's just, you, you never like to see these things. I just uh, to the greater point of, of teams moving, I think it just cuts against the soul of, of what the NFL was supposed to be about. This thing was founded by you know the Clevelands and Green Bays and 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 Buffaloes and you know smaller market teams. That if if we ever get to the point where it's just about who's got the biggest TV market and we should put the franchises there, well then you know where we're going to be. 30 years from now, 40 years from now, if this thing's still alive, there's going to be a team in high Hong Kong. There's going to be a team in London or two. There's going to be a team in Mexico City. And each of these teams that are fringe enough to not have major TV markets, maybe Jacksonville, maybe Kansas City, uh, maybe you know any of these places where, you know what, at the end of the day, you just can't technically compete with Toronto, who you know, is a major market, even though I know they're supposed to be drawn for the Bills. But whatever it was, if your formula is just the only way to keep your team is to have the, the biggest TV market, well, and, and now we're a global product. There are so many vulnerable products in the NFL. And I just, to me, that, that cuts against the Roselle ethic that was behind all this when they built this thing up. It makes me sick. It's, it's not, I don't think the idea of owning a football team, especially when a lot of it's financed publicly, was ever meant to be your greatest investment product in your portfolio. That's not the point of the NFL. It really isn't. And when Roger Goodell, who you know I think is, you know, Satan's pool boy. I think he's when his major goal when he came in as 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 commissioner was to you know he's his two things were this whole be the police of the NFL and then also to drive revenue to an annual number. I believe at the time he had said twenty billion dollars a year. He wanted to make this into a big big product. I don't think you can set goals like that and not go to places like where he's pursuing or at least allow them to happen. So the goal it cuts against the ethic. The ethic and the goal can't be can't be. Uh, you know, achieved at the same time. I think it's impossible. So I think all of a sudden we're going to start seeing teams in Egypt or I don't know. I'm, I'm just throwing darts against the globe and I'm not some guy who knows my, my, my map skills that well, but y- you know what I mean? It's just, if the, if it ends up being just Tokyo, where are the biggest cities, put a team there and, and screw you mid-market NFL teams that really made this thing what it is. I think the soul will be gone for this game. And I think I'll start becoming a lot more interested in, in college football, but I just ranted for way too long. So let's get into this divisional round. Damn it. Okay. Off the top, much much like a year ago or a week ago, uh, we had the same situation. Brady Brady Papingu is out there in L.A. is uh, is not on the line with us, but he sent in his thoughts, and we're going to plow through the games here, and each of us sort of giving what's our sort of deciding factor, our, our thing that we see as most important. These four huge NFL divisional games coming up this weekend. First game on the docket is the Seattle Seahawks traveling to Atlanta. Here's Brady Papinga's thoughts. With Seattle and Atlanta, I'm not a believer in Atlanta's defense. And all of a sudden, Thomas Rawls and that suspect 
cheap between quotations offensive line of the Seattle Seahawks. Looks like they're catching their stride a little bit. I would compare the Atlanta Falcons defense very much to the Detroit Lions defense. That's why I believe the Atlanta Falcons are going to have a tough time stopping the running game that now is starting to catch their sights. CJ Procise may come back, which only adds another dimension as he's an excellent receiver out of the back out of the backfield. And then Russell Wilson continues to make progress in the pocket. Now the only thing is, is Matt Ryan going to be the ultimate eraser in him and Julio Jones? What I mean by that, if that offense goes out there and is just as explosive as you could ever imagine, it may not matter that that Atlanta Falcons defense can't stop the run. It may not matter that they can't contain Russell Wilson. And so it's going to come down to quarterback play for the Atlanta Falcons. It's going to come down for the Seattle Seahawks of them being able to run the ball because their best defense is going to be that running game, keeping the Atlanta Falcons on the sideline looking up at the scoreboard, realizing, wow, the game's starting to slip away, and we aren't producing the same amount of stats that generally gets a quarterback into the mode where he feels like he has to press a little bit, he starts to force some things, and that only benefits the defense. I'm picking Seattle for their experience because they're getting that running game going, and I don't believe that defense is going to allow the Atlanta Falcons' explosive offense to actually be an explosive offense come this Saturday. So Brady here hits really big on the idea that he, in his view, thinks that uh, Atlanta's defense is similar to the Lions, a a really sketchy group that uh, is a little tough to trust in this kind of tournament. Uh, C.J. Procise is coming back for Seattle potentially, so he's sort of a back out of the backfield that might be able to create some new issues. Not that that uh, Atlanta already doesn't or Atlanta doesn't already have some issues defending as well. Uh, he really puts a lot of focus there on on Seattle's running game. Uh, you know, needing to be big and with Rawls sort of having a step forward week, maybe they can do it. Uh, how do you see Seattle and Atlanta matching up there this weekend, Brady? You know. Every one of the matchups this weekend is a rematch. Uh, here's the difference. I don't think in any of these cases those rematches are going to matter uh, for a number of reasons. You know, one, mo- most of these actually took place in the opposite venue of where they will be this weekend. Uh, the other issue is they were so early in the season, I think the identity of all the teams now has changed and it's different. And some teams have momentum. Some teams had injuries that affected who they are and how they play. So you can't necessarily go back and, and take too much out of that those previous games that they played because if you think about this matchup between Seattle and Atlanta, there was a pass interference call that everyone called on Richard Sherman against Julio Jones at the end of that game. And if it was called, probably would have had a different outcome. Atlanta probably would have kicked a game-winning field goal to win the game. There was also, right. by the way, a, a missed illegal hands to the face where Julio okay. Jones slapped yep. the helmet of Richard Sherman to get by, which wasn't called either. So. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I digress. The the matchup in this game that I'm most curious to watch, I'm curious to see, really is up front. And if you look at the NFC playoff picture, the least mobile athletic quarterbacks, Matt Ryan, Dak Prescott, Aaron Rodgers, Russell Wilson, all mobile, all can hurt you with their yeah. legs, and are very good when they outside the pocket. Matt Ryan's a good athlete as far as the general population, but not as good as those guys when it comes to being mobile. So. What's the key for stopping Matt Ryan and trying to, you know, res- you know, slow down this very, very productive offense, 540 points on the season, which is right there next to the St. Louis Rams' greatest show on turf. Right. Uh, it's getting him off the spot, pressuring him from the interior of the pocket and the edges. The difference this year than last year, Alex Mack, their pro bowl center, yep. he has solidified the interior of that offensive line. He's helped get more push. 
I don't know that the Seattle Seahawks will be quite as effective as they have been in the past. And I think because their secondary is missing Earl Thomas, that's not going to allow them to cover longer and allow those pass rushers to get to them. So I think because of the balance and because of what they have in the passing game for Atlanta, I think it's going to be a very, very tough matchup for the Seattle Seahawks. And, you know, their offensive line has struggled. I'll be curious to see how they try to account for Vic Beasley, who leads the league in sacks, even as bad as their defense has been. I don't know that I can really see the Seattle Seahawks being able to win in a shootout versus the Atlanta Falcons. And that's, that's, that's what this very well could be. And let's not forget too quickly that familiarity between Dan Quinn and Pete Carroll, yes. considering Dan Quinn was a DC there. So you better, you better realize that the Atlanta Falcons know all the nuances to the personnel, their weaknesses for the Seattle Seahawks, as well as their scheme. And, and, and same thing you could, you could say for the Seattle Seahawks, as far as, knowing Dan Quinn, but they don't necessarily know the personnel like Dan Quinn knows the Seattle personnel. Yeah, I, I love that you went there because I, I think that's sort of something that's not getting a lot of play. And again, it's, it's probably my own personal biases here, but Dan Quinn was, was my coach with the Jets. And I mean, there's a lot of coaches that left there because it was a mess, you know, and I think people fled New York and have gone and done good things. Like you look at Bob Sutton uh, as a defensive coordinator now with the Chiefs. Uh, you know, he's doing a great job there. It's one of the better defensive in the NFL. And, and Dan Quinn was sort of cut his teeth and got his his sort of M.O. For, for what he really is, a really great defensive coach by by doing the work he did out in Seattle. And that helped to obviously get him the job. And it's really the high regard that was for him around the league. And he got him the job there in Atlanta. And he, he's done an excellent job with it. That said, I know it kills him that his defense isn't considered one of the better groups in, in the league. And it hasn't been. So he sort of had to play a flip style. And you just you deal with the personnel you have and you make the most of it. But I, I look at that game and I wonder if, you know, I think we'll learn a lot. And in, in, in who comes out of this thing? Because... It, when I just simply, you know, if you call it Team X and Team Y and don't, don't get into history or, or fan bases or helmet stickers and all that kind of stuff, I think the profile of a team that is one of the best, most explosive scoring teams in the regular season but has a little bit of a, a defense that is a question mark. That profile of team hasn't historically done real great in, in playoff runs. Probably the only one I can think of is maybe the Colts. where And when they actually made their their, their first Super Bowl run, uh, the offense is pretty tepid throughout the playoff run, and and they had a surprise performance from the the Bob Sanders of the world, and and then they had, ended up you know Dwight Freeney who had a real disruptive playoff run, and that group that wasn't a really well regarded defense had a nice little defensive run, got some great turnovers, and you know that the rest is history. But it's really hard, other than that, maybe a Patriot group or two uh, that I don't even think it won it that way, but definitely that would advance far on the strength of just the offense kind of idea, there aren't a lot that, that have that profile. So that worries me a little bit with the Falcons. That said, because they're, they're, they're pitted here against, to me, the most inconsistent team that's left in the tournament, I have a really hard time buying into Seattle because I've just seen them be up and down so much this year. And I, don't, I really, really don't count beating up on the Lions last week as, as sort of riding the ship for me. I thought Lions were really a fringe playoff team. Uh, you know, I think you could have put the – obviously it's a, it's a different conference, but the Broncos, there, there was three or four uh, you know, teams you could find, maybe even the Titans, a few teams that were out of the playoff picture that probably could have put a better fight, in my view, against the Seahawks. So the Lions were just what they were in the, comp, in the division that they were in. 
and advance that way. But uh, anyhow, I, I just think we'll learn a lot about it, what that profile can do. Because if you get by Seattle, I think you should get by Seattle if you're if you're a serious contender in this. Because Seattle, Seattle's a very inconsistent team right now. So if we're to believe that Atlanta's for real, they need to put it on them in advance this week. So we'll move here next to New England and Houston. Uh, game here I'll be covering Saturday night uh, here in Foxborough. And let's get Brady Papinga's thoughts first. The Houston-New England game looks like the game that could be the biggest blowout of this divisional round weekend. And that's because you got Brock Osweiler coming into town. He's arguably one of the worst starting quarterbacks in all the NFL going against arguably one of the best. But that kind of rhetoric has overshadowed the underlying themes. And the underlying theme is this. The Houston Texans have a disruptive force on that dis- defensive side of the ball in the name of Jadavian Clowney. And if the Houston Texans are going to have a chance up in New England against a team that is seasoned, led by Tom Brady, Jadavian Clowney is going to have to be the biggest game wrecker that the Patriots have seen all year long. And I can imagine that Jadavian Clowney is going to be moved all over the place they're going to try to find the weak link on the offensive line. Depending on situation, they're also going to make it to where they're not. Talking about that Patriots offense going to be able to chip him or double-team him. And that is really the only chance you got at this point if you're that Houston Texans defense. Now, on the secondary, you just got to hold on with the slew of wide receivers that the New England Patriots are going to bring at you with their quick throws, their setup throws, and then their ability to adjust on the fly as they're all able to read the defenses and then hit those routes that really press the hot buttons in such defenses. But then on the other side of the ball for the Texans, Brock Osweiler is going to have to have the game of his life. And I will say this, if he ends up having a game of his life and getting close, I'm talking about like it coming down to the last possession with him playing a really good game, the rhetoric just may change on where he's going and who he is as a starter. So if you're Brock, this is your game. This is your moment to shine, to change everybody's perception of you. Because even if he has a strong game and they lose, he still will be perceived to be a quarterback that has more promise than a guy who maybe goes in and just gets blown out of the water. With the Patriots, it's the same old, same old. Be balanced on offense. Let LeGarrette Blunt pound that defense. Use the play-action pass to get him deep, and then if you can bury him, you bury him because the Houston Texans are going to come in with a fragile mindset. They came off of a blowout loss. Last time they were up there in Foxborough, I guarantee you that memory still sticks with them. And uh, defensively for the Patriots, they've been playing top-notch sound football. The best part about them is discipline. They very rarely make a mistake. And so if you're Brock Osweiler, Lamar Miller, you're going to have to find a way to beat this New England Patriots defense playing straight up. You're not going to find a situation where they're going to break down and they're going to see DeAndre Hopkins running all by himself down to the middle of the field. They're going to have to beat him, and they're going to have to beat him when they're playing their best football, playing clean football, disciplined football. Most likely not going to happen. So Brady here, you know, obviously touches on the thing I think is on a lot of people's minds here. Uh, you know, how in the world is Brock Osweiler led offense going to come in here against a Tom Brady led offense? I mean, that makes all the sense in the world. But he does hit on an interesting point: the idea that you might be able to change people's perception of you. You know, it's 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 not terribly high right now. He had a, he had a pretty positive week last week, but I think he only had like 15 completions, so it's not like they put the game on his shoulders. But maybe a nice week here changes things. And in his idea of Clowney being a disruptor, I'm right with him. Somebody's got to disrupt. 
up something. You cannot you cannot expect to go into to Foxborough and win if you don't get some turnovers and, and flip flip some possessions of your own. Where do you see this game going yourself, Brady? Well, I see it being a blowout. I don't see there really being any way that the Texans can compete. Even if Brock Osweiler plays his best game, it's not going to be good enough. I mean, that's the problem because if you look at Brock Osweiler's career, go back through and look at any statistical game or anything he's done, it's not going to be good enough to beat Tom Brady. Tom Brady would have to play his worst game of his life, of his career, and Brock Osweiler would have to play his best game. That's the thing that has to happen. That's the unicorn that would have to display itself in this game. <laughs> and I just I don't see it happening. And if Brock Osweiler is going to have his best game of his life, Lamar Miller's got to have his best game of his life. So you're talking about essentially you know, two players on Houston having their best game of their career as well as Tom Brady having his worst or maybe the worst we've ever seen in order for them to get a win. Uh, but I don't want to focus too much on that because I think, once again, there's a lot of familiarity, right? These two teams played right. one another early in the year. Granted, Tom Brady wasn't there. It was Jacoby Brissett for New England. And, 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 the, and the funny thing about it is, you know, New England was playing at home. They shut out Houston uh, 27-0. But, again, these teams are different. Is Brock Osweiler better in this system than he was in, what, week three, week four, whatever it was yep. at that point in the season? Yeah. I, I, would, I would like to think that, you know, he's better in this system or feels more comfortable or confident in the system. Whether or not he feels confident in his own ability is a whole different story, essentially, you know, especially since he's been benched. So that's going to play a little bit of a factor, I'm sure, in this game. Now that Tom Savage, who did take over for them, who missed last week because of a concussion, is healthy. So let's say Brock Osweiler doesn't get off to a good start. Tom Savage could be in this game. We've seen Bill O'Brien willing to pull the ripcord on a quarterback who's not playing well. So that's kind of the first stop. But it's also the X's and O's, right? I mean, Romeo Cornell knows Bill Belichick and everything he does is, you know, their Josh McDaniel's scheme offensively. So kind of the battle between the X's and O's, I'll be very curious to see and watch in the, in the first quarter, first half of this game as the teams start to make their in-game adjustments. And, and same thing defensively, you know, as far as what Matt Patricia and Bill O'Brien. I mean, there's so much familiarity between these two, these two staffs that I'll be more curious to see the personnel that each offense is using, the formations, the shifts, the motions, you know, how much audibles and checks are involved you know, in this matchup. It, it's going to be fun to watch if you were a junkie for football X's and O's. Yeah, I think that you're hitting on a huge point here. That's that's it probably won't register with a big audience that's that's that doesn't care about that stuff. But I think this is a great junkies game because, and you cannot look at that first matchup and dis, discount you know what what could happen here because of what happened on that time. For all those reasons that you touched on, I think Romeo can put together something that he couldn't conceivably have put together in that week three matchup because that was a Thursday game against a quarterback there. They were running nothing but gadgets with in the first half, you know. So the, the, all the things that they want to do with exotic, you know, rush schemes or, or front changes or ways to sort of get Tom Brady off the spot, none of that stuff applies. And it, it's it's a non-padded practice week, travel on a Thursday to face a quarterback who there's no film on. That that's why that thing happened the way it did. So I would say simply this: if if they were this massive underdog because they they're the the 
Texans defense were, was perceived to be bad, but the offense was pretty good, I think they would be in a lot less in a lot worse spot. I think they're in a better spot because they can defend. I think if you had to choose one or the other and you were underdogs, at least you know that you have been playing pretty great defense here for the last six, seven weeks and have the Texans. And I love, and it's more just maybe personal respect for, for Rack himself and for some of the other guys in the room, Mike Vrabel, who's running the outside linebackers, running some of the D-line stunt stuff. The way they'll game, the way they'll fronts, uh, move fronts, Vince, obviously a guy in there that's very familiar with what's going to be going on in front of him. The way that I think it gives them an absolute puncher's chance, not necessarily to win, but we, I think we have to remember that when it's, you know, go back in the schedule and look, and we've, we've been praising and we'll continue to praise here later in the show, uh, the Green Bay Packers and the, this run that they've had with Aaron Rodgers. That thing started the second game uh, with a win against the Texans, and they were held to just 21 points. So the Texans went on the road in Lambeau, probably a comp, you know against an Aaron Rodgers-led offense. I think that's a comparable challenge to going on the road to Foxborough and facing a Tom Brady-led offense. The difference here, obviously, being that it's in the playoffs. But to say that that defense could hold that kind of profile group, and I, I think the weapons are here a little better in New, in New England this year. They've upgraded themselves that way, and the, and the running game's a little better as well. But that said, you have to sort of consider the possibility that the Texans could hold the Patriots' offense Two in the neighborhood of 20. It might not be a 30-week. And if that's the case, let's look for turnover differential. You know, can they can they force a turnover or two? Uh, can they hit on a big play with DeAndre Hopkins? I'm plugging here the, the video that we put up on the website on footballbyfootball.com or on the YouTube page. I did a, an in-depth thing here on DeAndre Hopkins. I think he's their one big play threat. So that's the part I'll be looking for. But uh, we'll learn a lot. But I think there's it's definitely one where there's mutual respect on both sides. And it'll actually be interesting even if we can't drum up interest based upon the quarterback battle alone. All right, moving here next to Pittsburgh, Kansas City. This is the next game on the docket. This will be the Sunday early game. Early game. Uh, Pittsburgh with a huge win a week ago against the Dolphins, who looked like poo in that first half. And Kansas City got to sit home and wait. Uh, a really interesting matchup here. Arrowhead's a really tough place to play. Brady Papinga, let's hear his thoughts. With the Pittsburgh Steelers and Kansas City Chiefs, I'm giving Kansas City the edge because Kansas City is the most complete team in the AFC. And, yes, I'm including the New England Patriots into that. The only question mark with the Kansas City Chiefs lies with the quarterback, Alex Smith. Can this guy, can he convert himself from a dink and dumper to a guy who takes shots to a guy that we saw a couple years ago against Drew Brees in a shootout and win the shootout? Can he do that? Can he be more of a quarterback that can stretch the field vertically? If he can do that, not only will the Kansas City Chiefs come out victorious in this divisional round, they're going to be extremely tough to beat if they most likely play the Patriots in the AFC Championship game. With Pittsburgh, it's same old stuff too. Ben Roethlisberger has got to come out with Antonio Brown, Le'Veon Bell, and they got to win. And they're going to have to generate a lot of points in a short amount of time because that's going to actually put that offense of the Kansas City Chiefs in a position that they don't feel comfortable with when that's trying to generate points at a high rate. And that's because, as we talked about already with Alex Smith, that's not his nature. That's not what he's become. And that's not really what Andy Reid, the head coach of the Kansas City Chiefs, wants out of his quarterback and Alex Smith. So uh, for the Pittsburgh Steelers, you got to get the score going. Just very similar to the style of game that they played against the Miami Dolphins. I still am not believing that Pittsburgh Steelers defense. I believe they're weak. I believe that they are susceptible if you're going to just pound the ball consistently against them. You're going to commit to it and be patient with it. But I am giving the edge to the Kansas City Chiefs. 
Now, Brady here's touched on Alex Smith maybe having a stretch-the-field kind of game. I think it's a great thought. I think we've also been hearing this for years, and you always wonder when it will happen or if he'll ever let himself go that way. He wants those three big Bs in in, in Pittsburgh to have a big game. Uh, I think that's a pretty good point. Uh, What do you think there, Brady, is going to go down in this particular contest? This game's going to come down to execution in the red zone. If you look at the stats for the Kansas City defense – you know, they're actually – I haven't played very well this year. You know, based on yards, how many they've given up both in the run and pass game, they're not one of the more high-ranked defenses in the NFL. So, for that reason, it comes down to how well they've played in the red zone. They're actually one of the better, you know, points-per-game defense. So, if you're trying to look at these two teams as far as how they match up defensively, there's this perception that the Steelers weren't that great on defense. One, they've really turned it up, the rush defense this year. And that youthful back end – with a couple of rookies and Artie Burns and Sean Davis, they've improved as well. And statistically speaking, they're better than Kansas City when you look at their body of work this season. So you know, it's going to come down to whichever offense is able to execute at a higher rate in the red zone. And, you know, Alex Smith, he usually takes care of the football. There's been a couple times this year where he's turned the football over in the red zone. That would obviously be concerning. I don't think he's going to do it in this game or in this matchup, but – you know, can the Kansas City defense limit Le'Veon Bell and Antonio Brown when they get down into the red zone? And and also, what's the mobility of Ben Roethlisberger? Right. How how banged up is his ankle? Is his foot? Is he going to be the same player that we've seen over the course of his career, where he moves around, buys time, makes big plays downfield? So, all those questions kind of come to mind. Um, but this game, probably more than others in my mind, comes down to those superstars, not just Brown and Bell, about Tyreek Hill and Travis Kelsey. You know, Travis yeah. Kelsey was all pro this year as far as how he played at a tight end, and Tyreek Hill is that X factor as far as how they use him on offense, and whether it's, you know, catching the football, running the football, we've seen that too, and then in the return game. And, and as far as the passing game goes for both quarterbacks, it's going to be wet, it's going to be rainy, they're talking about an ice storm there. You know, temperatures going to be in the 30s, and so I'll be curious to see how the wind is. I don't know that we're going to be able to see that downfield passing game if the conditions sound like they're they're going to be what they are so far, and we'll see how the forecast changes uh, over the course of time. And then the last note I'll just make is Andy Reid, when he's got what 10 days or more to prepare for a game, he's like 19 and two or something like right. that. He's got a ridiculous exactly. record coming off the bye. So you'd have to give Kansas City the slight advantage because of that, because of the extra time to prepare, and Justin Houston will be back, and Tom Ball will lead for all his pass rushers, especially if Ben Roethlisberger is a sitting duck in the pocket. Yeah, this one's, this one's sort of a coin flip for me. Brady Pepenka touched on some what he perceived as weaknesses of the Steelers' defense. You seem to think they've improved. I, I kind of am a fence-sitter there. I really want to see them go against this particular matchup, a little less concerned with what they've done and others, because I think Kansas City is so unique. Kansas City is so unlike most other teams in the NFL, maybe a little bit close to Tennessee, maybe. I don't know if that's a perfect example, but I think I want to see red zone proficiency out of Kansas City's offense, and I think they they hit on something midseason where it's like, you know what, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna let Alex run. You know, Alex out of the front porch once we get in the red zone is probably one of our best options. Obviously, Travis Kelsey comes into play more there. Maybe getting Tyreek more touches once they get fringe 40 and N or high red 30 and N. 
But finding ways to do things down there, it doesn't have to be the Alex Smith, Smith show wire to wire. This isn't a Colin Kaepernick kind of offense, but once they get into the scoring area, allowing him to get more involved and seeing if, you know, if a guy like Shazier, who, who, who do you have that can track him and keep him from getting the in, easy conversions? I don't know if he's going to sling it. I, I think the, the greater question here is how does, how does that Steelers defense account for the Tyreek Hill plays? You know, when he's off the ball and in motion doing sort of some jet sweep kind of deal or they've, they've hit him in a bunch or, or they've, you know, he's, he's in stacked receivers and it's obvious that they're trying to schematically free him up. How do they account for that dude? How do you prevent the big play? Because I think that's that's absolutely a, has to be a prerogative for Pittsburgh defense because that's Kansas City. And if you take Tyreek Hill out and you're basically putting this offense back to where it was a year ago where you know it's a pretty good run offense, pretty good pretty good. You know, Jeremy Macklin's still there. Kelsey's a good tight end, but that explosive element is really the changer. If you take explosive element plays out, I think I think Pittsburgh has a fighting chance here. That said, their road splits have not been good. The offense has lost considerable amount of points. It's a big topic. I did a show earlier in the week with a guy from Pittsburgh, and it's all they talk about up there. You know, why does the offense drop off so dramatically on the road, regardless of who they play? Can they still score? Well, fortunately, they're playing a team that doesn't score a ton, typically, anyway. Uh, so I think that makes it for a pretty compelling matchup. I'm leaning Chiefs here. I think for I think you make a great point of a read off the bye, getting that extra time. Uh, but uh, the one thing I'd like to see, and this is sort of a special teams point, is if your whole shtick is to try to keep Kansas City out of explosive plays, don't punt the ball down the field, middle of the field. <laughs> Angle kick it, especially if you've got that rain and sleet. You don't end up with a flat ball and Tyreek Hill taking one back 75, and all of a sudden they won like a two-possession swing kind of thing there. So it'd be interesting to see. Brady, you played in Kansas City. You know it's tough to smoke meat out in the parking lot when it's rainy and windy and all that kind of shit. So, you know, it's it's a great – it's one of the world's greatest tailgating places. But uh, it sucks that th- those conditions could – could slow things there a little bit for what Pittsburgh likes to do, getting those three Bs involved. Now, we will transition here to the final game. And this is, uh, amazingly, uh, Green Bay gets gets primetime twice. And it's probably a, a smart smart idea. That they that was a nice game last week, getting Green Bay and the Giants together, even though the, Green, that the Packers inevitably blew them out. Uh, now you get Green Bay and Dallas, uh, in Dallas. Dallas sitting and waiting. Aaron Rodgers is hot as hell. Let's hear Brady Papinga's thoughts. The Green Bay Packers, it's all about Aaron Rodgers. The guy's playing out of his mind. At least he did that against the New York Giants for three quarters. If he continues to do that versus the Cowboys, it's going to be a tough day for them because now that running game is going to count for less, talking about Dallas's potent running game. And now Dak is going to be in a position where he can't lean on that running game. He's going to have to now throw the ball down after down, especially in predictable passing situations and this year we have a very small sample size as to how he performs in those predictable passing situations. He's been able to lean on the play-action pass, and he's been able to lean on uh, situations where it's a two-way go to where a defense isn't fully just pinning their ears back on the front and then in coverage mode on the back end. So Aaron is the key for the Packers. If he can get going and get a lead, generate points, that's going to bode well for the Packers. Dallas Cowboys, on the other hand, they got to do what they did the first time, pound the ball, keep Aaron off of the field, put their defenses in solid positions, they'll win the game. I'm picking the Packers in that game because I do believe Aaron Rodgers looks the same way as he did in 2010 when he went on that unbelievable run where he probably played the best stretch of football that I've ever seen of any quarterback. He looks like that again. Can he sustain that in Dallas? We'll see. I believe he can. 
So, you know, Brady's predictably, it's made it all about Aaron, and I think that's a fair point. He's hot. He's playing great. Uh, he seems to think that uh, the the way to slow the Dallas run game isn't necessarily a front change or some sort of defensive thing. Uh, to play them better than they did early in the year, it's just to, to get up early and get the style of game that Aaron wants to play out in front of him and, and force Dallas to keep pace and not allow them to just pound them with the running game. Uh, where do you see this thing going down, Brady? Uh, well, again, another rematch from early in the season. And, right. and the difference being this game was played in Lambeau. And I, I guess the thing that concerns me, you just touched on the note of how the Pittsburgh offense struggles on the road. And it doesn't matter who they play this year. You know, look, everyone's going to struggle a little bit playing on the road, right, especially right. in the offense. There's communication involved. It makes it more you know, tougher for the quarterback to communicate to the wide receivers and the pass catchers as well as the offensive line. And for the offensive line, didn't necessarily get – that jump off the snap of the football um, right. like they normally do. So they have those things working against them. Uh, if you look at the career record of Aaron Rodgers at home versus when he's played on the road, it, they're staggering. He's got like a 56-14 to 14 win-loss record at home, and he's like 37-34 on the road. So, mm. you know, more so than anything else, his, his play has, has dropped a little bit like you've seen from every quarterback he plays on the road. Um, so that, that's a little bit concerning for me. As far as you know, how the Packers need to play, based on what Brady Papinga said, and then really what I believe, and, and then they do need to play from ahead. They do need to force Dak Prescott to have to throw the football more, and then not just the you know typical work within the in the inside triangle in between the numbers of the field, where you're trying to hit Cole Beasley and the running backs and Jason Witten uh, somewhere over the football or somewhere in between um, the hash marks and the numbers, right? They need to actually, you know, force him to have to push the ball down the field and, and be more aggressive. And to do that, they've got to be up by a couple scores. Uh, so, to me, it doesn't necessarily come down to the Packers' offense. It comes down to the defense. It comes down to their defense and whether or not they can stop Ezekiel running the football and if they can get a turnover. That's going to be the biggest thing. If they can force Dak Prescott to play poorly and turn the football over one or two times, either via a sack, fumble, or interceptions, that's going to be the biggest key. Get Aaron back to football a number of times and try to limit the ability of them to eat up that time possession so he's not sitting over there on the sidelines. Now, the biggest you know, injury concern for the Packers right now is Jordy Nelson. Now, they, they ended up you know, playing pretty well without him, especially in the second half last yeah. week versus the New York Giants. You know, the difference in my mind is can we get that same level of consistency from Devontae Adams? You know, throughout the course of his time in Green Bay – one of the concerns is he's been a bit of an inconsistent player, an incon- inconsistent pass catcher, and Randall Cobb just came back from injury. Can he replicate his production from a week ago's game and step up like that? And then finally, you know, the X factor in this game to me is Ty Montgomery and how defenses, in particular Dallas and Rod Marinelli, their defensive coordinator, how do they account for him? He's such an interesting matchup because of his ability to run the football but he's wearing that wide receiver jersey coming out of the backfield. So how do you change up what you do defensively to account for him leaking out and catching footballs out of the backfield? Do you just blitz the side of the back to keep him in? Or do you try to find a different way of you know, banjoing him or bracketing him, however you want to you know, term, you know, term it? Uh, and then the last thing is you know, Christian Michael. He was another part of that running game. He actually led the Packers last week running the football. I'll be curious to see if that gets him any more touches versus the Dallas Cowboys defense. So, look, I think this is going to be a great game. I think it's going to be really close. Uh, and I'll be I'll be curious to see who's able to pull it out in the end. Yeah, I thought that Christian Michael point was – I noticed the same thing in the game, and I was like, you know what, this is such a 
an interesting addition that it's it's too bad we haven't seen more of this. You know, he, he was a midseason addition. He hasn't been a huge part of what they did. But uh, contrast his style to Le'Veon Bell. Le'Veon Bell takes, you know, 20 minutes to get through the line. He's so incredibly patient, breaks it big, makes an awesome play. Christian Michael runs his 40 time every time they hand it to him. <laughs> you know, he's into the line. He's plowing as hard and as fast as he can. Sometimes I think that makes him miss holes, but he's a frenetic guy, fun to watch. And I do kind of wonder that, you know, I, I, this is sort of, I guess, a counterpoint to, to Brady's thought of getting up. I would be a little concerned that if you put this too much in Aaron's hands, and, and for some reason, you don't win on those first couple series, and the Cowboys do, right? It, you know, I, it's really tough, I think, to counter it if you've sort of all, I'm not, maybe this isn't the right metaphor, but all your eggs in one basket kind of thing. I think balance still helps this Packers offense. I, I think they, they run block really well. It was just sort of finding the consistency of who the dude was going to be behind them. And, you know, the Ripkowski, you know, can he occasionally be a guy at the fullback slash tailback that can take some carries? But uh, they they have an interesting mix back there, and I'd I'd be curious if, on the flip side, if if for some reason you know you just try to go Aaron style, Aaron style, Aaron style, and you miss uh, with him flinging it for a few series, and for whatever reason they convert a couple ahead of you on the ground with with Ezekiel Elliott, man, now it's hard to to get back and sort of play from chase mode down there because Dallas has been really good this year. Once they get up on you, then going back to that and pounding you. So I think from and a similar X's nose kind of conversation that we were talking about with the Houston, New England thing, I think it's similar with that for me for, for the, for the green Bay running game. Like how, how can you account for some of the scheme run excellence that, that, that Dallas has? How can you keep the, the fives to three yard gains? How can you keep the sevens to four? You know, keep these into more mild games, gains so it's back in Dak's hand a little bit more. Uh, Brady Pink has a really good video, folks, I'll plug there that he did earlier in the year where he goes through the scheme runs that, that really work well for Ezekiel Elliott. Check that, Elliott, check that out on our on our YouTube page. So for me personally, though, when I'm looking sort of what I think will be the deciding factor in this particular game, I think it's going to be whether or not Dallas's defense, surprisingly so, really takes that step forward. I think they can be just as disruptive as people expected the Giants to be, but they get the advantage of doing it at home. I'm a big unapologetic David Irvin fan. I love this guy. I don't know what the hell is going on. It, it, big number 50, 95 for the Cowboys. He's sort of this off-the-bench bench pass rusher that will come in and get limited reps. He might get 15 plays for the game, but he'll go in and he'll get it like in a four-play series or, you know, three-play series, but if it goes, you know, he gives four plays and he gets three hurries and two of them are sacks. Like, he's crazy. And all of a sudden, they're getting Morris Claiborne back this week, uh, potentially Demarcus Lawrence as well. David Irvin is sort of that X-factor guy that they rotate in through their pass rush, I think they've got better guys to track down potentially. Uh, and I know Dallas is not often known for this, but with Lawrence back and David Irvin maybe in a little greater role, is sort of a just go get Aaron kind of thing. I don't think you're going to see the 10 second pockets we saw against the Giants. Some of that was absolutely ridiculous. Like, and again, I think this should be you know tip of the cap to the to the Hogs up there to get it done. As good as Aaron Rodgers played a week ago, he got some of the most ridiculous pockets I've seen a quarterback get this this NFL season. He there were multiple plays where he was roaming around there and dancing for 10 seconds. That's that is not easy to do. Uh, so, but I don't think he'll be afforded those situations from Dallas. I think it's really an underrated defense that gets some of the right bodies back at the right time. So I'm seeing close contest as well. 
I haven't made my decision. I'll probably be doing it on on Sunday itself, but that's one that we'll all be tuning into, and they, they, they're they in the Catbird spot being the fourth game, and I think rightfully so that's going to be a great matchup. So, Brady, what are your plans for the weekend? How are you going to be consuming this whole thing? I'll be working for CBS. Uh, they're in their studios down here in Pompano Beach, Florida. Uh, it's a digital studio, so we always do a pro or excuse me, pre-half and post-game show uh, for all the games. So I'll be responsible for three or four of them. So busy weekend as always, but I mean, what could be better than getting paid to watch football? You know? So this is my gripe that sounds terrible. Don't gripe. Don't be a complainer, Matt. Uh, (laughs) We get the night game. So we actually will not be doing post-game TV because when you do a night game for us, we'll go past midnight. So, you know, the Saturday night game fortunately makes makes for some pre-stuff and then post will be into the morning and you're already, already at that time into uh, paid advertising time. <laughs> so you can get your, uh, <laughs> you know, whatever, ab cruncher machine or whatever at that hour. So, uh, you know, fortunately for me, that just means to get to do pre and then just dive into it, enjoy the game. And then that makes for me Sunday more of a just sit back kick back and watch and then tv doesn't come until late at night so i i love these kind of weekends it's a little little more work for me than than a weekend ago where you just got to sit and watch both games but uh again i i love divisional weekend fans out there should as well and, and you know brady enjoy it yourself man have a good weekend of work and uh, we'll get at you next time sounds good and enjoy the games see you pal and that is all we have for this week's In the Game podcast. That was Brady Quinn, Brady Papinga popping in there, and myself, Matt Chatham. Thanks, as always, for checking us out. We love doing this podcast for you each week. And good Lord, folks, we've only got a few more left. Divisionals, AFC Championship game, I guess the bye week after that. And we wrap this thing up with the Super Bowl. So uh, we got a lot to pack into several weeks. So enjoy yourself this weekend. Continue to check out the website at footballbyfootball.com. Go to our YouTube page. We've got a few video videos up there for this week's uh, set of games, including the podcast. And as always, thanks for your patronage. Follow us. Check us out at FB by FB on Twitter, the Facebook page, all of those things. Enjoy the weekend. See you, folks. Thanks for listening to the Football by Football podcast. Football insight by football players. Hi, Lucky. Hi, Dusty. Good night, Ned. Good night, Ned. Good night, Ned.